Welcome to the International Curriculum Specialist Series, where Fieldwork Education interviews both experts and educators on how best to improve our learning. In this episode, we delve into the quality of work in the classroom, an area that does not get enough attention, but should. What makes a piece of student work beautiful? Why does a student, just like a carpenter, need a model of excellence to progress? And why should assessment take place the moment a project begins instead of at the end? I interview educational expert Ron Berger to find out how his passion has focused on creating quality student work over many decades, and in turn, what you can do to encourage your own students to craft valuable, important, and yes, beautiful work. I'm Lee Hendricks, International Curriculum Manager for the middle years here at Fieldwork Education, and welcome back to the International Curriculum Specialist Series. Ron Berger is the Senior Advisor for EL Education. He is responsible for leading EL Education's vision of teaching and learning, bringing with him 45 years of experience as a teacher and professional development designer, 28 of those years teaching public school. Ron is the author of eight books, two of which are bestsellers. They are called An Ethic of Excellence and Leaders of Their Own Learning. Ron is also a teacher at the Harvard School of Education. He also founded a website titled Models of Excellence, which showcases quality student work. Ron, thank you very much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time and taking a moment to join our specialist series. Thank you for having me. And I'd just like to start with the first question. I want to know a little backstory. Tell us what led you to your passion of becoming focused on the quality of student work. I know that when students finish their schooling and enter their adult lives, for the rest of their lives, they'll never again be measured by test scores. They'll be measured by two things, quality of human being they are and the quality of work that they do. And it really doesn't matter what life choice they make whether they're in business or a nonprofit or service to the world or whether they're raising a family, the kind of human being they are and the quality of work that they do is what matters. And somehow we've gotten away, I think, in schools from caring deeply about kids having an ethic, a work ethic to really work hard and also do beautiful and sophisticated work to do high quality work. If that were our focus in schools, we'd have a very different vision of what we wanted kids to graduate with. And that when we hire those kids in our places of work, we think they are such hard workers and workers with high standards for what they do. I think there's nothing more important for a better world than having good human beings who do good work. I've heard you say that for some reason, we do not focus in school on really supporting kids to do beautiful, valuable, important work. Could you further explain what you mean by that? And what does beautiful look like in the academic sense? Our schools in the United States, in the UK, everywhere, all across the world, our schools are held accountable primarily for student scores on standard assessments. They're not held accountable for the quality of writing, thinking, and speaking, the mathematical work they do, the scientific work they do, the writing they do. Like We are not actually holding schools accountable for kids to be the kind of people who dedicate themselves to doing things of quality. If we were, schools would spend their time focusing on that. It's not the fault of schools. It's the fault of what we're holding them accountable for. And so if we, as I do, walk through schools with the lens of, is there beautiful work up on the walls? Are kids speaking articulately and thoughtfully about interesting issues? Can they explain their thinking and their work to you really well? That's what schools would be prioritizing. 
That's how they would be held accountable. So I think our whole accountability is skewed. I understand it's for a convenience way. It's easier to rank children if you have a standardized assessment for them. But it's not what matters in the real world. And I think it doesn't matter what we're talking about. I mean, my early years were I was a public school teacher making very little money. And so I was also a carpenter designing and building homes. And the quality of craftsmanship that's on your crew as a building team really matters to you. You want coworkers that are carpenters who have the highest standards and skills for what they do. That ethic of craftsmanship of like, I'm going to do it well is what I try to imbue in my students. Those are the people I'd want on my crew building a house. Those are the people I want in my laboratory doing scientific research. Those are the people I want in my newspaper being journalists. Like it doesn't matter what the job is. You want people who do their work well and do it with an ethic of care and craftsmanship. So it sounds like your background in carpentry has really influenced a lot of where you are today. Deeply so. Great. I just wanted a little side note on that because, you know, speaking of beautiful work, one of your most iconic videos, which educators may have watched, would have been that story of Austin's butterfly at an elementary in Portland, Maine. So in this video, you encourage a group of students to ask questions and critique the quality of the students' artwork to show how, with the right guidance, a basic drawing can evolve into a masterpiece. For curiosity's sake, what happened next after telling the story of Austin's butterfly? And have you kept in contact with Austin and his progress? It is an interesting thing in my life because the video has been viewed millions and millions of times, and it's how I'm often recognized in the world. I go into schools and kids say, oh, you're the butterfly guy. We saw you in the butterfly video. The young man, Austin, was in Boise, Idaho. I actually lost touch with him because as a second grader, he moved away. But I can tell you, there's a very memorable young man in the video itself looking at Austin's work. His name is Atta. He's from Somalia. He's a refugee to America. And he's the young man who says, hmm, he made a lot of progress. He persevered when he did it. Or he says, not to be mean, but it's just not quite right. The angle isn't quite right. Comes up to the board with me and sort of explains how he would do thoughtful critique. That young man I've stayed in close touch with. As a ninth grader, he was a leader in his high school. And as a 10th grader, was a keynote speaker for us to 1,500 educators at our national conference. And he's now in college, a first-generation university student from his family, a Somali refugee family. And Atak has that same careful, thoughtful quality that you saw in him as a fourth-grade student, a 10-year-old. That video lives on. And it's also used in colleges, universities. It's used in high schools. Because the message of it is not about a first grade drawing. The message is no matter what we do, we can get critique and make it better. And it doesn't have to be perfect the first time. We have to commit to multiple drafts, multiple revisions, multiple rehearsals to make it great. Wonderful. Like hearing the evolution of that. I hope one day Austin will be in contact with you. (laughs) So... For you, what does student-engaged assessment, what does that look and feel like? And what is one myth about it that you would want to debunk? The most important assessment that goes on, Lee, in any school building is the assessment that goes on inside student heads. We think of assessment as a once-a-year test or a three-times-a-year test that we give students as something done to them. But actually, students are walking through the hallways and sitting in classrooms assessing constantly. They're assessing, do I understand this well enough? Am I behaving well enough? Is my work quality enough? 
can I turn in this work or should I revise it and make it stronger before I turn it in? Am I putting enough effort into my work? That's the assessment that governs the quality of kids' thinking and learning and work. That's the assessment we need to tune up, not this external assessment. So yes, we need a checkup once a year. I'm not against the idea of having tests occasionally, just like you go to your doctor once a year for a physical, perhaps. But going to your doctor once a year doesn't make you healthier every day. The decisions you're making every day to exercise or not, to sleep well or not, to eat well or not, that governs your health as a human being. And so we want to get students invested in assessing themselves to themselves with their peers to think about how they can be stronger in everything they do. And so when students own their own progress, when they feel like I'm in school because I want to get better at this, I'm invested in getting better at this, everything turns around. Because we know as educators that you can't force a kid to get better. The extent to which they care governs their growth. And so any strategies we can use to get students to care more deeply about their own growth and own learning helps us all. So student-engaged assessment is getting students to understand the targets of where we want to get to. Rather than coming in and just doing what they're told, they come in and they think, here are our goals. Here are our targets of where we want to get to in our mathematical learning, English learning, in our history learning, in our science work, in our work for a better world. These are our goals. We discuss those goals together. We think about pathways. Students own those goals. Then they track their progress toward those goals. The difference for me is when I enter one of the schools in our network, the Yale Education Network, and I sit down in a classroom and I ask a student what she's working on, she doesn't say, I'm doing what the teacher asked me to. She says, do you know our targets for the day? These are the targets we're working on. Here's my progress toward those. Can I show you some evidence of what I'm understanding? They might say, we have some long-range targets. Can I show you my portfolio so I can show you where I'm getting towards those targets? And she can explain what she's aiming for in her academic learning, what she's proud of, what she's struggling with, what her own goals are. She sees this as her journey, not just following a teacher's rules. She owns the trajectory of her learning. And when that change happens, that's when I see schools really take off. That schools feel like the students themselves are the leaders of their learning. I hope you're enjoying the International Curriculum Specialist Series. To find out the latest updates or want to share your thoughts on the series, connect with us via our socials on Twitter at FW underscore education or on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at Fieldwork Education. Now, back to our interview. So since you had a big focus and impact on the quality of work, leaders of their own learning you lay out the importance of models, critique lessons, and descriptive feedback. Could you briefly explain the difference and importance of those to improve quality of learning? So I spoke a little bit earlier about my experience building houses and designing houses for 25 years. When you're a carpenter, you need models. What a good miter joint looks like, what a good framing plan looks like, what a good stair stringers are. You have to look at models done by a master carpenter to think, That's what it looks like when it's done well. You can't describe in words what a good joint looks like. You have to look at those. So you learn joinery by looking at well-done joints. Build off those models. And in truth, if you or I wanted to learn a new thing, play guitar, speak another language, to do yoga, 
we would go online or go with an expert and we watch what they do and they would model it and we would work from those models. Like we would watch how they play a chord or watch how they do a position or watch how they frame a sentence. And we would try to copy that. Like we all, as adults and as kids, we learn from good models. But as educators, we often worry that we can't use models because kids might copy them without remembering that's how we learn. We learn through copying. You read great writing, you copy aspects of it, and then you become a great writer and improvise. So we need models to set a standard of what good looks like. If kids see adult-level scientific reports, they know what they're aiming for. If they see beautiful writing, they know what beautiful writing looks like. They see good science, they know what that looks like. And so by providing models from other students and from the professional world, we give kids a vision of what they're aiming for. And then when they start aiming for that, they need to be iterative, just like Austin and Austin's butterfly. They need to start out and realize my first draft is not going to be great. The first time I pick up my guitar, I'm not going to be a virtuoso. However, I'm going to get specific critique from my peers, from experts of like, if you did this slightly differently, if you did this slightly differently, that would improve it. You need to keep thinking, I'm going to get kind, helpful, and specific critique along the way so I know what changes to make to get better in my work. I view feedback as a learning experience for everybody. In the book, Leaders of Their Own Learning, we talk about critique lessons, not just individual critique for kids. So individual critique for kids is if you're a teacher and your student hands you her paper, you look it over and you give her some specific guidance and hand it back to her personally. It's a different and more powerful thing if you can also take an example of great student writing an essay, a scientific report, whatever the genre of writing is, and you project it for all the students and you look at it together and you think, what did we do well here? What are the strengths of this piece? Can we name exactly what works? What guidance would you give him for next steps? Where is he losing you as a reader? What's happening here? And by critiquing models together, kids are thinking, I could do that with my piece. Like I can look at my piece in that way. And so rather than saying to a kid, a good essay has these attributes, you can start with a powerful essay and name the attributes together in language that resonates with kids. They can build the attributes of what a good scientific report looks like, what it sounds like, what it feels like. They get a sense of that from the model. And when they start their work for it, they want critique. They want to be hearing like, what can I improve? What can I make better? I also think a power of group critique is that you can bring in experts. You can bring in a scientist. You can bring in an author. You can bring in a dancer. You can bring in an artist into your classroom to run critique sessions with you and get the expertise of the professional field. And I'm not talking about just at a high school level. I'm talking about at middle grades. I'm talking about in second grade, like younger kids. Everyone can learn from the power of expertise. And we don't usually use experts in that way. We usually bring experts into our school buildings to speak about their profession. I'm a writer. This is what I do at my job. This is how I train. I am an architect. This is how I do. But imagine if your kids are doing blueprints for homes and you have architects come into your classroom to critique their blueprints. Then they think, oh, my God, an expert is going to critique my own blueprints. I really have to care about getting it great. And I really have to listen to what he or she says. And I will remember everything that they said about my work because it was an expert who gave it to me. That's a powerful experience. And that leads me to my next question. So in the International Middle Years Curriculum or the IMYC, we have something called the exit point. This is a final prescribed opportunity for students to demonstrate the understanding they have developed over time through a chosen project. It is usually at the end of a unit in our process to facilitate learning. 
And the exit point goal is for students to demonstrate their understanding. It is not recommended to summatively assess it. So instead, we strongly recommend to plan for proper feedback. Students should get that from teachers, parents, and very importantly, from their peers. Based on your work and your experience, what are some of the best ways to provide feedback to students for these sorts of projects, such as the exit point? And what role can parents also play in this? I think one of the misconceptions about project-based learning is that one would wait until the project is entirely done to start your assessment. The assessment should be taking place from the moment the project begins. And that assessment should be both to inform the quality of the project itself and promote its quality and depth, but also to get a sense of the learning process of that student and how to push him or push her to be a stronger learner along the way. So I was in the classroom 28 years. My students did projects every year, and I was a middle-of-years teacher myself. I kept my notebook of all the different checkpoints along the way in that project where we checked in, where students did small demonstrations of work, where we had meetings about it, where they got critique around things, where we did quizzes or tests to assess their knowledge in something where they did presentations to their peers or to the class along the way. And so if that parent were to come in and say, how did my student do on this project? I have this wealth of assessment data. Here's how she did at this point. Here's how she did here. Here's what this draft looked like. Here's the critique she got. Here's how she presented this here. Here's how she did on this assessment, this quiz and this test about the knowledge. Here's how she did here. Because the goal is that the final project should be an A+, right? It should be top notch. And in fact, if it's not, Something went wrong. I think the idea of not grading those projects summatively at the end makes sense to me because they all should be beautiful and superb. If not, we didn't do enough pushing in the small assessments along the way to make them great. Every student, I think, is capable of great work with the right kind of scaffolding and support and critique. And so we should focus our assessment about the learning that happens in the weeks or months in creating that piece. Expect that every final piece is top quality. Every final piece for that child is an A quality piece. The more parents are in the classroom in that process, the better. The more kids are sharing at home at night with the work they're doing with their parents, the better. But we can't assume that all families have the privilege of having time with their kids or having the resources at home. Some parents are working when their kids are home and they don't have that time. Some kids live in foster homes or temporary housing. So we can have a project model that's dependent on parents being there, but we want to have a project model where if parents can join the process, they can be critiquers, they can be listeners, they can be supporters of it. Ideally, they can also come in and support other students. Parents can come in as experts to give critique to other students in the class too and broaden their investment. That's really thoughtful, the process of it. You're absolutely right. People wait to the last minute to really look at you know, assessing or, you know, looking at the quality of it, but don't take the journey. And I think that is just like Austin's butterfly. The journey is important to get there. Really wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. So we like takeaways here. What is one takeaway you would like the listeners and the viewers to know about with your research or discoveries in the field of education? That can be with the quality of work and student-engaged assessment. What is one takeaway? I would say we can't underestimate the transformational power for a student of doing something that he or she or they are deeply proud of. 
when we finish our schooling, a lot of it evaporates for us. We don't remember everything that we were taught in those days, everything that we did, but we remember those things that we are deeply proud of. And often those things are outside regular classrooms, right? They're an athletic achievement or a musical achievement or an achievement in drama. That meant a lot to you. Those things should also be in the center of school. Kids should have the opportunity to do some things during the year that are so good that they surprise themselves, that they surprise their parents, that the school is proud of, that they are proud of. And so school can be a fast-moving train, but we've got to get off that train sometimes and let kids really do something well, even if it's a small thing. I have the privilege of living in a small rural town. It's so small that I was the only middle grade teacher for 25 years, which means all the people that live in my town under the age of 55 are my former students. So I see them. My nurse is my former student. The policeman is my former student. The volunteer fire department, they are my former students. And when I see them and they're 52 years old, they still come up to me and they say, do you remember the blueprints I created in sixth grade? I still have those at home. Do you remember the scientific study we did of water quality in our town? I still have that report. I've showed it to my kids. I showed it to my grandkids. Like I have this perspective of what stays with students over the years because they still talk to me about what they're proud of when they were 10 years old and they're 50 years old now. And so we should all be thinking not everything in the course of our year can be like that. We have a lot of things we have to address with students that it's not going to be memorable. Don't let a year go by without giving students opportunities to do some things that are really pushed in quality, that are really memorable, that they are truly proud of, that every student does something where she thinks, I can't believe I did that. I cried. I fought with you. I fought with my parents. I didn't think it was going to work. But look how it turned out. Like, there is more than me than I thought was there. And if that happens every year, it changes their sense of what they're capable of. That's a great takeaway. So in summary, saying what you said, remember the work that we do with pride, the proud moments that we remember etched in our years in education and beyond. I think that's a great takeaway. Ron, I'd like to say thank you very much for taking time out today. And I really appreciate your insightful answers and your, your experience in the education world. For those who are listening or those who are watching, for more information on Ron Berger's latest work, you can check out eleducation.org. Thank you again, Ron. And maybe one day we'll have another interview and maybe we'll have a follow-up to Austin's Butterfly. Thank you for your time and your work. All educators are heroes to me. So thank you for all of the people listening for the work that you're doing for children. Another takeaway from this interview is what Ron Berger said about the importance of models. We all need good ones to grow. We should not be afraid to use and show a good model of something to our students. Otherwise, what would a student aspire to? How are you modeling in the classroom? What did you take away from Ron Berger's interview? We would love to hear your thoughts on our socials with Twitter at FW underscore education or our Instagram or LinkedIn socials at Fieldwork Education.